nowhere to be found. I find this yellow post-it in my apartment. On it is handwritten in blue ink, like from a pen, the words, prepare to be found. That's my handwriting. But why did I write this? What does it mean? When did I write it? Prepare to be found. What does it mean? And this yellow post-it appears all over the apartment in odd places. It flies around like a yellow butterfly. One day I go into the living room. There it is on the leg of the desk near the floor. The next day I'm in the foyer and there it is attached to my mother's picture up on the altar. Now, I didn't put it there. Another day I'm in the bedroom and there it is on top of the bureau. All different spots. It flies around the house. Kind of freaks me out. I walk into one room, there it is. It's on the stem of the lamp on the table. The yellow post-it note butterfly lands here and there, and it's a profound message. Prepare to be found. If I could only figure out and remember why I wrote it. Did I mean like I once was lost but now I'm found? Or was I thinking I'd be discovered the way an artist can be discovered? Or does it mean I'll get lucky in love? (laughs) You know, like Cinderella? By the way, who the hell walks around on glass and not even in shoes but in slippers? Makes no sense. Whose idea was this? I think for a change we'll put the men in glass. You know, no wonder she lost her slipper, by the way. She's better off barefoot. Yeah, women walking around on glass and not even in shoes. Not in leather, glass. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, let's keep telling our young girls this story. And the prince, the prince always turns out to be gay anyway, so. Then one day, I'm on the phone with my friend. The post-it note appears on the lamp. And I say, look at this. I take a picture of it and FaceTime it. Prepare to be found. I say, oh, I remember now why I wrote this. This was back in the early days of sheltering in place. I remember these two elder queer artists. Each of them died and was unidentified for weeks. One for a couple of weeks in the apartment, the other for over a month in a hospital morgue in a freezer. And we all grieved this situation, everyone who knew these artists. After that, the first thing I did was I ordered medical ID tags, one for my neck, one for my wrist. Now, you got to put someone's phone number on these tags, and it's tricky. You know, you become like a life insurance agency. I mean, you think of people and you think, what are the chances they'll outlive me? Then you think, do they answer the phone? Then, you know, do they do stupid things? Like, how distracted are they? Do they text while they're driving? How lucky are they? Are they lucky? The next thing I did, I wrote this post-it note to myself as an instruction. Prepare to be found. Because I looked around the apartment and I took stock. I mean, if somebody walked in here, if they found me in here, they'd think I was living like a lunatic. When you live alone, you got to set the stage for your own debt so people don't completely misunderstand you. What would they think if they walked in here? I got the bedroom set up like a street corner with traffic lights, a don't walk sign, and a parking meter. And a subway token booth. The living room, I built a cave, like a lean-to. And a funny thing about that little space, it's like three feet by three feet inside. I feel more expansive in there than I do in the apartment where I feel confined. But in the cave, I feel like a kid in a fort, like we used to build these forts with sheets over furniture and, you know, create these secret little spaces. Or would go into the closet to have privacy with a flashlight. 
or even just under the blankets at night. It felt like an expansive place. So I find myself sitting in this cave, not just to record these stories, but to feel expanded in my mind. What would somebody think? I got socks boiling in the giant macaroni pot on the stove. I got underwears hanging from the curtain rods to dry. There's a bloody axe next to the rocking chair and the potbelly stove because it's a stage set for a play I was in. And there's a handwritten sign and red magic marker on the wall to remind me to breathe hard and fast as I enter the scene. So the sign reads, breathe hard, you just chopped her up. I mean, what would somebody make of all this? They go in my medicine cabinet. I got enough medication for the Salvation Army over here. I mean, I had boxes of masks and gloves, you know, for the past 15 years. I was ready for 2020 in that sense. Yeah, people go into your apartment after you're gone. They piece together a narrative, and they're always wrong. They leaf through your notebooks, your medication vials, see what books you're reading in bed, go through your sex toys. They start examining objects, come into all the wrong conclusions. I don't want nobody making conclusions about my life. Anyway, my house, it just ain't clean enough to drop dead in. The third thing I did was something my grandmother used to do. I took all the tablecloth, sheets, towels, everything out of the linen closet, the washcloths, pillowcases, and I folded them all the same widths so they stack up nicely, which ain't easy to do. Now, my grandmother used to iron sheets and pillowcases. I'm not going that far. I remember she used to tie pink ribbons around the stacks and say, look at how nice, organizzato, tutto posto, sistemazione. And she'd even show company, her linen closet. Sanity, cleanliness, order. In Grandma's day, the bed and the table were altars. And so the women embellished these altars with lacework. Beautiful. The bed and the table were the pillars of the family. La familia. So next, I wrote a note. And I leave it out on the table at night. I write notes on paper plates. I don't know why. This is what my mother and I always did. And it works because, you know, you use a piece of paper, it could fall on the floor. It could, you know, a wind could come in and knock it off. But a paper plate has more heft. It's more stable. And it's fun writing on paper plates. I just love it. So this is the note on the paper plates. Dear so-and-so, if you happen to find me, thank you. Don't panic. I did the best I could do in life. I'm happy to die at home. That's a blessing. Please don't overexamine the objects that live around me, please. Donate what you can, throw the rest away so people can pick what they want out of the trash. Now bury me in all cotton and wool. I left an outfit in the closet tagged, forever clothes. And cover me in the wool garments that my mother knitted for me. Hats, scarves, and the ponchos that we call spirit shields. I have a blue and brown wool one. I have a like a natural colored wool one, like an off-white wool one. Just cover me in all the loving stitches my mother made for me with the hours of her life. I know time is passing. Even though in 2020, 2021, if you ask me what day is it, what month is it, I'd be confused. But this is how I know time's passing. I'll tell you a story. I got this friend. She brings me things. And she ships me things, all kinds of things, quirky things. I mean, one day in lockdown, I tell her I'm making mosaics to make beauty out of brokenness. Next thing I know, she brings me a terracotta amphora that's broken. It's gorgeous, and it has on it an embellishment of dragons and feathery plumes. It's like she walked out of another century with this thing, and it's filled with family stories. Another day, she calls me. She says, hey, Annie. 
I got this subway token booth. You know, in the 60s, my husband went down in Bleecker Street and he stole it out of the subway. Would you like it? I said, sure, yeah, I'll come pick it up. I don't know what she's talking about, but it sounds interesting. And she knows I love the icons of the street, mailboxes, parking meters, street lights. She knows I collect these things. She knows my apartment on the inside looks like a street corner. All I need is a sewer cap and a Johnny pump and I and a mailbox. I got everything. Now, she also gives me lots of cooking advice. She's a great cook. Forget it. I remember once we ate at her house, me and a friend of mine, and afterwards he never had a meal like this in all his life. He wasn't Italian. He laid down on the sidewalk outside her house and just said, oh, my God, I never ate like that in all my life. He literally couldn't move. I had to pick him up off the sidewalk. You can't mention anything to her because otherwise you're going to get, you know, the solution, a gift in the mail. I mentioned to her I was cooking in this little aluminum frying pan. I was sauteing something. And the pan flew off the stove. It's a lightweight pan, and it just spun around on, I don't even know how. It ended up on the floor. Everything was on the floor. So next thing I know, she ships me a cast iron pan, big as a sewer cap. This thing, it has to weigh 30, 40 pounds, very heavy to lift. I can't even really lift it when I'm cooking. I mean, so I leave it in the bottom rack of the oven. And then I just throw stuff in there. Like I'll slice an eggplant. Boom, goes in there. Throw some onions. Throw throw in the onions. Throw in potatoes, whatever. And then when the meal's over, I take a, uh, my father's, what do you call it? Uh, Like a spackle, spackle spatula. You know, the thing you put on spackle with. That heavy metal blade, basically with the nice handle. And I scrape the pan and then I re-oil it. Because, you know, cast iron, you can't wash. You got to grease. Maybe that's why my grandmother always told me not to take so many showers. She was kind of against washing, you know. She just said, let the oil build up on the skin. Don't wash the oil off of the skin. She thought it was ridiculous that us Americans took showers every day, like before school. This cast iron pan's going to outlive all of us, believe me. And if society falls apart, I'll be okay. I'm going to grab this pan and somehow take it with me. I'll have to learn how to carry it on my head the old school way. And I'll build a fire somewhere out in a lot and we'll be okay. Just come find me. At the beginning of sheltering in place, she shipped me 18 pounds of linguine from Campo Basso. This linguine, you eat it, you feel like you ate a steak. It's hearty. And that's how I know time is passing. I mean, in the beginning, I said, ah, so how am I going to eat 18 pounds of linguine? How long is this going to take me? Now, I got four pounds left. And that's how much time has passed. Some people in confinement, the prigioniere, the prisoners, scratched the hash marks on the walls to keep track of the days. I just look at how much linguine I got left. Not much. Around the holidays, she tells me, Annie, I'm clearing out my son's liquor cabinet. Now, he's got all these imported fine bottles of port, scotch, bourbon, tequila, rum. And each bottle's just got a couple of inches of liquor left. But it's a shame to get rid of it because this is really good stuff. You know, if I bring you up some bottles, you could throw a shot of bourbon in when you roast your chicken. And we could also have a toast over the holidays. We could have a glass of port wine. What do you say? So I said, all right, okay, sure, whatever you say. I tend to listen to her advice. So, you know, now I never cooked like that, like with hard liquor and chicken and stuff. But I do remember my days in Louisville, Kentucky. Everything I ordered came with bourbon, butter, and bacon. Like I'd order a side of spinach. 
and it's soaked in bourbon butter with bacon in it. You know, I mean, practically you order a cup of coffee, it comes with bourbon, butter, and bacon. So I said, all right, you know, everything in Louisville is delicious. So I did what she told me. She brought up the liquor bottles. There was like about 15 bottles, fancy, shapely glass, beautiful. I took a shot of bourbon. It was very smooth, delicious, warmed me right up. And when I roasted a chicken, I did what she said. I threw a shot or two of bourbon in there. Ah, the chicken was delicious. Roast chicken, potatoes, onions, peppers, forget it. And we had a nice glass of port over New Year's. Beautiful. Now, but I'll tell you, all these fancy bottles of liquor ended up saving my life. And I'll tell you how. After she brought the liquor, a couple of weeks later, I had a day where all these side effects from radiation therapy from when I was a teenage cancer patient, all these things hit me at once. Now, there's a lot of long-term effects. You could talk to any long-term survivor of a childhood cancer and they'll tell you. So I had an intense drop in blood pressure and then an intense spike up. Then I had a gripping wave of nausea and a headache. And my airway was closing. Sometimes the airway snapped shut, boom. Other times I could just feel it. It lets me know it's on its way to close. So I had to keep my head like in traction for hours. Just I had to stay still. I couldn't move. And I did everything I knew how to do to right the boat and just keep breathing. Then I heard my father's voice say, take a hot shower, let the hot water hit your neck and run down the muscles of your back. So I got in the shower. The shower was always a regenerating ablution site. My father and mother always believed in the tub in the shower to heal ourselves. So I get in the shower, I make the water hot, and I'm letting it hit the back of my neck. But the nausea overtakes me like a tidal wave. And I made a big mess. And the airway starts to close. So I start coaching myself. Annie, keep the airway open. Keep it open. Don't aspirate, please. Keep it open. Keep it open. Keep it open. Breathe. Because if the airway snaps shut, you'll pass out. And if you pass out in the tub, you're going to crack open your head. And if you crack open your head, you're going to die. And if you die, they're going to come in here and find you laying here in a tub of mess. And they'll find all these near-empty, fancy, expensive, imported liquor bottles. And then they'll all call each other and say, did you know Annie was boozing it up in there? She didn't have any money. How'd she buy all these expensive bottles of liquor? And I kept my airway open. And that's how those liquor bottles saved my life. My mother had an answer for everything. She had a system for neighborhood elderly watch. From the time I was 12, 13, 14, if she noticed that an elderly neighbor wasn't seen walking around the neighborhood for a few days or sitting out on the bench, she'd take me by the hand. We would walk pinky dinky, we called it, intertwined pinkies, and would walk to the neighbor's door. My mother would knock on the door. If they didn't answer the phone, she'd hang a gift on their doorknob. Sometimes her signature raisin cakes that she baked inside coffee cans, so they were cylindrical-shaped cake. Delicious with coffee, by the way. Or, depending on the season, a stalk of palm or some hard candy or a box of Malamars. The next day, we'd go back to the front door. If the gift was still on the doorknob, my mother would say, Annie, you better climb in the window. See what's going on in there. So when you grow up in the Bronx, you're just adept at climbing. You know, you see a fence, a fence is for climbing, not to keep you out. You see a cinder block wall, you hop over it. 
And this is how we would visit one another. We wouldn't walk around the block. We'd hop backyards over fences, you know, over walls, whatever. In fact, one of the first, one of the first conflicts I had with my girlfriend who didn't grow up this way was, uh, you know, we had a quid pro quo. I said, all right, I'll come to the modern dance concert with you on Monday. But Tuesday night, could we go play basketball down at the schoolyard? So, okay, so we tried. So we get to the schoolyard at night. Naturally, the fences are locked. So I throw the ball instinctually over the fence and start to climb the fence. She says, hey, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean, what do I do? And you said, we're going to come play basketball. That's what we... She said, no, but it's locked. It's locked. What are you doing? I said, so? And I realized right then and there we had a, a worldview conflict. You grow up in the Bronx, you see a fence. It's to climb over. But you grow up in America... You see a fence, it's to keep you out. We never solved that conflict, but that night we did play basketball. So when my mother would say, Annie, you better climb in the window, I would just see instinctually, and, and even through my 40s, if friends got locked out of apartments, third floor, whatever, I could just see, you know, a foot on a tree, you grab a pole, there's a foot, there's a window ledge, there's a wire, whatever you could grab, boom, 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 ba beep, ba bop, ba boop, you're up, you're in, that's how you get in. So I was very adept at this. So with my mother, I found a couple of neighbors dead and in trouble this way. One lady had a heart attack. She just, with a long cigarette that was lit, she fell over the uh, coffee table in the living room. But the fall put out the cigarette so that she didn't start a fire. That was lucky. Another guy had a stroke and he already had a seizure disorder. And him I found between the radiator and the bed, he was stuck he couldn't get up so that was a save he was very grateful that was a save now i'm the one alone aging and in lockdown an elder queer artist living alone i go days and days without seeing another human if i'm lucky i see a human being about an hour a week for a walk outdoors but i haven't been alone with a human being or any being an animal anything indoors you know, I can't even count. Well, I guess, what, 12 pounds of linguine ago. So every night it's decision time. Prepare to be found. Do I triple lock and barricade the doors and windows to keep intruders out? Or do I leave a window open in case a neighborhood kid got to climb in and find me? Thank you for coming to Annie's Story Cave. This has been a Street Cry Inc. production. Way Street Cry.